Good morning and welcome to the Leadership Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by Paul, who is CEO and co-founder of Kalepa. Um, Paul, good morning. Well, certainly good morning in podcast terms. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Alex? Very good. Very good. Well, look, thank you very much for being a guest. This is one that I've wanted to have for some time, um, and I've got my reasons for doing that, but it's always kind of great to sort of kick off and and let you introduce the, the clever business because you'll give it you'll give it the best service that it deserves. So it'd be great if you could do that for us. Sure. Thrilled to be here. Thrilled to be chatting with you. And, you know, Calepa, we really have a simple mission um, to help insurance organizations of all stripes really um, underwrite better. And, and we think that underwriting, of course, is, is a critical activity of insurance, right? Understanding, selecting, pricing risk. Uh, but it's a tough job. Uh, it's difficult for underwriters to to balance speed with, with quality. And it's very easy to grow a book by saying yes to everything. And of course, that's not the best way of, of, of building one. Uh, also, it's very easy to avoid claims by saying no to everything. But uh, what insurers are trying to do ultimately is to solve their customers' problems and providing with the protection and the risk transfer they can. So what we built at Calepa is uh, an underwriting workbench, um, you know, a, a platform that is power. Uh, by AI to help underwriters who are in the trenches day to day make the best risk uh, selection decisions, you know, prioritize their time, understand the exposures and controls, and ultimately build the most profitable, uh, fastest growing book that they can with confidence. Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to ask a really simple question to start with, and, and and I hope it's not too simplistic, but we just had a discussion that there are no stupid questions. I think it's because the term underwriting workbench has been thrown out and it's by different businesses. What does it mean from your perspective? Because um, I think we start there when we're talking about these tools. Otherwise, we, we kind of don't have a focus of that conversation. I completely agree. I think I think the term is used to mean a variety of different things. But but I, I do think that when you, as, you know, look at the core of what a workbench is, right? Where it comes from, you know, imagine a, a carpenter on his or her shop, you know, building something and they have a workbench with the tools that they need to do their job. And I think when you take that very simple metaphor, uh, that really captures what a workbench is in our opinion, right? An underwriter has a job to do. They, they need to service their customers, their broker partners, uh, they also need to select risk and ensure that they are building a profitable book. And what a workbench is, in our opinion, and what our co-pilot platform, underwriting workbench is, is providing them with the tools to do that all in one place. And those tend to fall in a couple categories. You know, the first one, first important tool is, well, the underwriter receives a submission. Someone is applying for insurance. There's a lot of important information that comes in that submission that needs to be turned into something useful. So that's part one. How do we turn that submission to something the underwriter can use? Looking at the documents, looking at the files, looking at that. The second component is how do we help the underwriter before they have even started underwriting to understand what are the optimal opportunities for them to work on? What are they most likely to bind, to bind profitably, to help them achieve book objectives? And the third one is once they're underwriting a risk, what do they need to know? What do they need to know about that risk? to make the best decision? What are the exposures? What are the controls? What are the hidden pieces of information that might lead them to change a rating decision, to add an exclusion? That's what Copilot does. And that's what we think an underwriting workbench needs to do is have everything in one place for the underwriter. And of course the underwriting leaders to also you know, achieve the book in the direction that they want to. 
I was thinking when you were talking then what that means for skill development of, of the underwriter. Um, because whilst this is kind of hugely useful to people that, you know, this, let's take the carpenter example, skilled carpenter with great, you know, very precise tools, that's a huge benefit. But to the kind of carpenter learning their trade, the underwriter learning their trade, is there a risk that, I suppose, it, does it does it change the way that you think that we train people in the underwriting environment? Yeah, I think I think it's a great question, and 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 frankly, I, I think it does, but it does it in a in a somewhat different fashion, right? You go back to analogy of, of you know the the craftsman, uh, craft person um, building something. Well, certainly the the set of tools that are available to a carpenter, but same idea to, to an underwriter, uh, don't just need to be the sophisticated tools. And sometimes a very sophisticated tool can actually simplify the task that, that someone's doing. I mean, you can imagine, I don't know, you look back, you know, sculpture back in the day to craft, uh, you know, a line probably on stone would be very difficult, right? You needed uh, probably decades of experience doing that. Now they're machines that help, you know, a, a less uh, skilled artisan do that. And I think the beauty of, of a good workbench, in particular workbench in modern terms, a software workbench, is that it can adapt, right? So there are certain types of activities that a very skilled underwriter, a very experienced underwriter can basically leverage the platform, leverage the AI in, in our co-pilot workbench to accelerate what they would do, have them focus on the value add that they have from you know, their judgment, their experience, the real craft of underwriting. Versus someone who's earlier in their career and is learning the ropes, well, the workbench is acting a little bit different. The, Workbench is, is providing them with guidelines, is providing them with guardrails, is providing them with a mechanism to ensure that they're making the best decision, despite the fact that they don't have necessarily the multiple decades of experience. And, and you know, I don't think this is unique to underwriting. I think we're seeing, we have seen that shift in, in many professions over the last couple of years, certainly is being accelerated by, by you know, the advances in, in in technology, but I think that notion of augmenting and adapting to the skill level of the individual is an important one, right? You know, if you try to if you try to paint on a very what I'll call broad stroke and assume everyone is the same, I think you miss the boat. But the ability of technology to adapt, which is something that's unique that can be done now and couldn't have been done 15 years ago, um, enables you to do that effectively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think that's a, that evolution of the, the way that we think about people's skill sets and skill sets jumping up. I mean, almost the way I ask that question says something about the way that we think about training and development now. Whereas actually in five years time, when every underwriter uses a workbench as kind of just de facto the way that they operate, that development, so that development growth will be quicker. Um, and the way that you'll learn will be different. So you know, that kind of time served. And I think we need to get away from that. And I, I've probably been guilty in that conversation just there with kind of just having my mindset in in that world of insurance and just saying, because it's still very much a sort of time served business. You know, you're you're seen as an expert if you've served enough time in the industry. Um, yeah. I think that's right. There's another critical component, of course, in, in insurance, a, a large and underwriting, which is something that, you know, technology can help with, but it's not a replacement for, which is the value of relationships, 
right? You know, in many ways, what those decades of experience give an underwriter um, is, is the understanding of, you know, how they can best serve their distribution partners. Uh, but what technology can do is, is equip them to focus on that, right? To focus on the parts of the job that require that, the human touch, that require a human judgment, which is something that technology is not well equipped to do, uh, while taking away some of what I'll call the more mundane, uh, but also, you know, areas where the computer can do a, a good job. Right? You know, I think it's, it's, it's very clear and it's becoming increasingly clear that machines and humans do some things very well, and those are not the same things. And I yeah. think the, the, the best solutions are ones that understand that deeply and make it seamless to have the humans do what the humans do best, relationships, judgment, experience, finding, the, having that sixth sense of what might be going on here, while the machine is the one that looks at 10,000 data points in three seconds without breaking a sweat and tells you here's what you need to know. I was confronted with this actually earlier. Um, it's slightly off topic, but I think it relates is, is that I was pitched a recruitment tool and it was a AI conversational tool that allegedly it can do this in speech and written. So you would pre-screen applicants using this tool and it would essentially be able to have a two-way conversation with someone and ask questions and respond um and i started to think about not just what was practical but also what was preferential because if you say you care about me as a candidate and you don't put a human being to talk to me i'm not sure i believe you <laughs> I, I i agree i um, i completely agree I, and i think it's uh you're absolutely right. I mean, it ultimately is what is it you're using the machine for, right? You know, you basically have that platform. I'm sure it's a great platform and, and is delivering a lot of value to, to some of the talent professionals that are using it. But what is it that you're using it for? Because certainly what you're trying to do, as you mentioned, Alex, is you want to evaluate the candidate, but you also want to sell the candidate into the opportunity and doing that. And you might do okay in the former, but you will probably do quite poorly on the latter if you let the machine do that job. And you need to know, well, there's two jobs that are being done here. One should not be done by the machine, one should. Mm -hmm. mm. And, 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 it, and that's why I thought it was kind of a good parallel because I think what, you, what we're talking about with workbenches in the underwriting environment, is like give the underwriters better tools to analyze risk. And that gives them more time to probably double down on their skills in building relationships and and and, and broker relationships or whatever they be. Hundred um, percent. I did see a very clever piece of kit yesterday, which allowed, which did live question suggesting during the interview process. So it was quite funny. It was like in two ways. I was like, one's too far. One's exactly where we probably need it to be. And it and it was workbench versus replacement of underwriting, basically, as it were. Um, Absolutely. I wanted to dig into your, you know, the business is um, five and a half years old. Is that, is that? Uh, yeah, we're, we're a little bit over. Well, we're basically out around five years now. Yeah. Um, and the evolution of that business, am I right in saying it was kind of a pure AI company now and then you productized it into the workbench? Is that is that a fair reflection or? Um... Uh, no, I mean, well, but, you know, I think it, it's interesting because because the, the word AI, I think, is is really like many other words in technology is a bust. Right. People throw yeah. AI, machine learning, deep learning, now generative AI, LLM. I mean, it's a 
wrote an article just last week, uh, uh, we call it buzzword bingo. Um, and, and, and there's an element of that. AI is a tool. Right. AI is a tool like many other tools, and and it's not. We, we don't believe that the strategy of having a hammer and looking for a nail is wise. The, the real problem in the industry has been how can you deliver better underwriting, and that has been a problem for for decades. That you know carriers have tried to solve, technology vendors have tried to solve, etc. So when we build a company, we set out to you know take a different spin. On this, and certainly one of the tools that we've been using from day one has been AI. I mean, we basically started the company in an era where the tools that were out there were powerful and have only gotten more powerful since. Uh, but the product, I mean, it's interesting because now everyone and their mother has a product called Copilot because that makes sense, right? You're trying to use the generative AI, and then the Copilot number is there. Our product has been called Copilot since day one, and that was deliberate. Our take was it needs to be there to assist the underwriters in doing that. And we have basically taken the technology and our mission and how we think about design, how we think about building is to put that behind the scenes and offer a simple kind of um, solution to the underwriters. So has there been AI and Copilot from the beginning? Yes. Uh, will there continue to be? Of course. Is there more now? hundred uh, percent, but we don't call ourselves an AI company in that in that regard. We call ourselves a, a company that's helping underwriters do their jobs better. Uh, it just so happens that we use a lot of AI and powerful technology behind the scenes to do that in a number of areas. Right, there are a number of important problems that need to be solved to help the underwriter uh, understand a risk. Right, you know what is that business in the first place? A simple question is, you know, there's some business that comes your way. What what is it? You know, is it, it, they might have a DBA number and then they might have a number of different entities. What information can we find about that? If we find, you know, piece of text that tells you uh, somewhere there that, you know, this restaurant, uh, the bartender makes great margaritas or makes terrible margaritas. Well, you might not really care about how skilled this bartender is, but I sure know that they serve margaritas. And there's that kind of nuance on how you do that. And increasingly, we're seeing more interesting things where now with the latest advances, you can you know, really start drafting communications for an underwriter to review. You can summarize thousands and thousands of documents. You can take images and documents and provide kind of a, an understanding of what that is. So it's a powerful technology, but at the end of the day, if you're not solving the real problem of helping the underwriters write more and better quality business, it doesn't really matter. Mm. It's, um, I think it's reminiscent of a few conversations I've had as in the last probably 12 months, maybe 18 months, really about where the generation of insure tech which in, in and of itself is probably a buzzword and not particularly yeah. helpful um but if we if we put quote unquote insure tech in a bracket the evolution of kind of investment really has gone towards things that do exactly that solve existing problems in in insurance businesses that help those businesses either grow or be more profitable by being more accurate or more productive and and it fits absolutely in this sweet spot um that's why I was wondering whether sort of AI is almost sort of an unhelpful term uh, 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 to a certain extent, because I wanted to talk about language, actually. Um, and I, I put this question and, and I, I hope it kind of translates well, because <laughs> it was it's, a lot of my questions are kind of just thoughts pulled out of my head. And then you sometimes look at it and go, it's actually a question. But I wanted to ask you how important it is to talk in a language that your target market understands. 
so uh, like how important talking about technology in insurance terms to insurance people uh, i think it's critical i think it is critical um for two reasons you know the, the first one is um ultimately for for the product to deliver on its mission and and for us important that co-pilot drives what matters to to carriers uh you know we need to understand what that is right? so we oftentimes find that the highly technical organizations and, and we are one you know our team is you know machine learning engineers and software architects i come i come from a science background and software background uh, folks from intelligence community but but it is critical that we understand what are the pain points of our customers which in the case of an insurer an insurance leader it's very simple right they're trying to grow a book and do so profitably and and really technologies that help them do that are valuable technologies that don't don't we do find that when folks don't understand the language don't understand what their customers are actually trying to do they tend to focus on vanity metrics right so you know you do see a lot of folks that tend to say things like going back to the ai number oh you know whatever we have the x level of precision that's good right that, that's, that's a technical metric that tells you the accuracy of the model that you have what does that mean right does that lead me to make a decision that lowers my loss ratio by X percent, that increases my bind rate by Y percent, that helps me retain my underwriters um, in a tough hiring environment that obviously you're familiar with. If it doesn't do any of those things, then it's hard to see why that technical metric matters. And, and we think it's critical that we understand exactly what the insurance language and the insurance priorities are, and, and we put tremendous emphasis on doing that. That's one. I mean, the second one is really a matter of empathy. Like, you know, at the end of the day, we're serving people. And these people have chosen a career in insurance, which is an important profession that does, you know, very important things in the world, right? Without insurers, people don't take risk because they know that if something goes sideways, there's no one there to take care for them. So if we understand what these people are doing day in and day out, and we don't understand how to communicate with them, there's no real reason we should be around. Right. There, there's no real reason we uh, should be building for those folks if we don't understand them and we cannot talk to them. We put a lot of emphasis in doing that. And, you know, even when we hire very technical individuals, uh, we want to make sure that they understand that customer focus trumps tech focus at Caleb. Tech is a tool and we find the right, you know, the right tool for the job, not the right job for the tool. And that's something that's critical to us. Mm. I um I was involved in a project, a, a hiring project. God, a long time ago now. It's depressing how <laughs> you look back and go, it's probably 10 years ago now. Um <laughs> we, we were we were building out a science division for a very well-known uh, insurance company. And um one of the challenges we had was was essentially getting the academic community, because that's what they wanted. They wanted a true scientist, and then putting them in into an, an insurance organization, which is obviously a profit-driven organization. And they, they talked about some of the cultural mismatch was that to run a model from an academic environment, you want 100% accuracy. You want to get as close to that as possible. Whereas obviously within a commercial entity, it's about commerciality. So 70 might be enough. 70 might make a huge amount of difference. And, and, it, and it's about kind of balancing those kind of two needs in, in that, yes, we want to be evolving from a technical perspective, but it, it becomes a point where it becomes irrelevant. Um, and, and I often think this when I'm talking about customer experience, um, 
we, we, we went to a customer experience talk uh, as a team and I was very unpopular because I kind of put my hand up and said, we were talking about this new modern banking apps and I just said, well, I don't care. And, and, and I was talking from a consumer and now I'm not alone, but the point I was making, we're in a room full of customer experience specialists and UX designers and UI designers. We all think this is really important, but I actually got to take a step up and go, how inconvenienced is that banking app person by having a nine step login versus a seven step login? Is it enough for them not to be a customer? So, you know, getting down to those metrics and, and what really matters, I think is, is super important. And it speaks to culture. Do, do you sometimes, is that sometimes a big challenge for you when bringing technical people in and, and they do they struggle to adapt sometimes in that environment? Uh, you know, I think that there's, there's two aspects to that, which is it is critical to culture. And in general, we don't find that the team we bring struggles to adapt, but that is because we put such an emphasis on that culture in the hiring process, right? So I think I think a lot of folks fail to adapt in the interview process and in the hiring yeah, yeah, process yeah. And, and don't ultimately join, join Calepa. But uh, yeah, it, it is critical, right? I think it is, um, there's some level, I mean, it's, I think of that as something where there's both a mindset Right, you know, you need to have that mindset of prioritizing um, what I'll say the the stuff that really matters, but it's also skill, right? Like I think there are right ways of doing it and there are wrong ways of doing it. So, and then people can develop that skill of of separating, um, you know, knowing when you do need a hundred percent accuracy, right? There's sometimes you do need a hundred percent accuracy for it to make a difference to the business, and in those cases, you, you just have to do. It. And you have to basically put in the effort, put your head down and get it right. And getting it 98% correctly is insufficient. Uh, but there are other cases when that is not the case. And optimizing the latter uh, tends to come at the expense of the former and ultimately does not deliver the results. Um, so, so that's something that, that we put a lot of emphasis on. Um, you know, in a way, it's a little bit of an analogy of how we think and how this is not exclusive to us other organizations think about experimentation right there are things that do require perfection of the bat right you need to get them right the first time a hundred percent of the time um you know the example i always give folks is just hey you know if i if i hopefully not but if i never needed to get you know brain surgery i do want the surgeon who has done this exactly the same way successfully for a thousand times. And I don't want her to be trying out something new. Just do it the way you did it before. Right? Yes. There are very few things like that. Right? The, the, the wisdom is in knowing which of those decisions are like that and get those right. Versus the other ones, what you really want to do is making sure you're pushing, pushing forward and helping the underwriter do their job better today and even better tomorrow and even better the day after that. And, and frankly, I think the best products now, particularly with these new advances, can do that because these products also learn, right? They automatically learn, adjust, get better. So the, the paradigm is such that if you focus on the wrong things, you actually miss the boat. You actually end up behind on both what I'll call the vanity metrics and the real metrics by not focusing on the things that actually matter to the insurer. reflecting on my own business there and thinking oh, what can we think about things that matter um i um i wanted to talk to you about because i did read your articles and um your colleague was kind enough to share them and, and we'll we'll put them um uh, out with the episode because I, I thought they were brilliant because it really helped explain ai 
in the con in the context of insurance. And I think that's the that's the thing about AI. It's a tool. It's contextual to the environment. And so I really wanted to ask you from your perspective, what's what's hype versus reality in the AI conversation when it comes to insurance specifically? Yeah, I mean, I think it is related to what we've been talking about. I think I think a lot of the hype uh, on AI right now is it takes two two or three flavors, right? One is is what we talked about, which is AI is going to replace the underwriters. I I think that is completely misguided, right? The underwriters uh, are, are here to stay. Um, the one thing that AI is terrible at is having judgment. And judgment is critical when you're making an insurance decision. And, and we strongly believe that augmenting those underwriters, empowering those underwriters to do more um, is, is the right way, right? So that, that's one flavor of hype and hubris, in my opinion, which is there's this magical tool that you know now is going to eliminate the need for, for underwriters. I couldn't be further from through it. Uh, the second source of hype that we oftentimes see is trying to hide behind the buzzword, um, basically, to some degree, obfuscating, right? Trying to say that it's complex, so trust me, right? <laughs> and it's smoke and mirrors. <laughs> and, 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 and actually find that it's interesting because when you think of any other domain in life outside of business, it's the opposite, right? If you think truly, what, what truly does it mean to master something? In many areas of life, you know you're a master at something if you can explain it to a five-year-old. Yeah. Uh, except for business. <laughs> in business, you actually do reward the folks that actually pile sentences of you know 12 buzzwords, one after the other. And, and we, we don't think that's that's the case, right? I think we ultimately think that the best ways of making powerful technology delivered are to actually obscure that complexity and ultimately enable the people who are doing the day-to-day -day work uh, do whatever they're doing better in very simple terms, right? And it actually, the, the, the counterintuitive perspective is that it is actually harder to build products like that, right? The products that are simplest tend to actually, or that feel simplest, tend to be the most complex uh, in the back, right? And you can think through like, you know, there are many analogies, particularly when the web was emerging and you saw kind of all those really clunky interfaces before and, and they look complex. So you select these things and then you mark that and then all these check boxes. And, and that looks like, wow, the cockpit of a plane to order a pair of socks. And then you basically get Amazon where it's one click purchase. So mm -hmm. you say, well, the buying experience in Amazon is very simple, but what does it need to happen behind the scenes to provide that simplicity? That is yeah. the better product. The better product is not the one where you need to figure out all the complexity and buzzwords. When you go to Amazon, no one who's buying a pair of socks in Amazon cares about what you mentioned, the payment infrastructure, how your credit card details are encrypted, um, you know, what it takes for them to have a logistic hubs that's going to get that to you in one hour. But you need to have all of that for them to simply be, I click on my phone and I get a pair of socks delivered to my house tomorrow. Right, so so that that's what we think separates the the hype versus both, and then the final one too we touch on, which is actually focusing on what matters. I think a lot of companies, a lot of products, a lot of ideas um, that are only focusing on the technology but that are not core to the business tend to be doomed to fail. Right, and and we do see that in every single wave of technology. Right, <laughs> my my favorite recent example was uh, three years ago or so. Um, when obviously Web3 and blockchain was, was the big uh, hype of the day. Um, I'm not sure you heard this, but there was a company um, that I basically is a company that manufactures some of the Long Island iced tea 
cocktail, whatever they, they had a name, and they changed their name, the the, the ticker on the stock, they, it's Long Island Blockchain, IST, and the stock went up, <laughs> and the stock <laughs> went up, and and you basically say, well, you know, clever marketing idea, but like that's hype, right? There, you know that that there's nothing that that has to do with the you know with the business of making beverages. And yet they're trying to do it because there's hype. So I think we tend to see those three camps, right? You know, replacing the human, um, no focusing on on the core business, and then ultimately trying to complexify rather than simplify the lives of the people who you're trying to help. Uh, That's actually easier to do. It's harder to build a product that simplifies and takes all the complexity of the technology behind the scenes. Yeah, it's, I, I think that's a really important point that gets missed a lot is, is the complexifying situation because you go, well, we've got this technology, we can do all these things and and actually go, and, and that's the perfect example, the Amazon piece. It's like, it's incredibly complex what happens behind it. I don't care. Like as, as a consumer, I have no interest in knowing about that. I just want to go one click purchase and, and we're really guilty. And I think people that embrace technology or technologists are going, we can do all these things for you. Um, and not wanting to overuse this example, but it was kind of going back to this technology tool I was given, shown yesterday, and it was it was very very good, but it was kind of video interview stuff. And and I thought I'm a search guy. That means I'm now going to give these videos over to my client. And I'm going to here you go client. You need to spend an hour and a half watching these videos. They just want to know who to, who to hire. So actually, I, I, I don't. It, it's another thing that happens behind the scene that they don't need to see. Um, I wanted to ask your view on regulation because I, th- I feel like this is how can regulation be expected to cope in this environment? Um, and, and this is a really tough question, but, um, you know, I'll, I'll shoot it open to you as much as I can. But like, what would your advice to regulators be in this new landscape with new technology and tools and insurance? Yeah, it's a good question. And, you know, I'll preface that by saying I'm not a regulator. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> right. So, you know, take my my thinking as, as that of, a you know, uh, I'll call a, an informed observer, not a, not a practitioner. And I think regulators have a very hard job to do. Right. Um, you know, the, the, there are a couple of things that that I think are critical for regulators, both within financial services uh, and, and within AI more broadly. And you see a lot of us in both sides of the Atlantic, right, uh, about it now. One, of course, is the technology is advancing so quickly that, you know, it's, it's tough for regulators to keep up. The reality is that the private sector moves significantly faster than the public sector does. And therefore, for the regulators to stay at pace, it's difficult, but, but they have to, um, because oftentimes some of the biggest mistakes that I've seen happening in the past uh, around regulations have been trying to feed you know, a, a square peg in a round hole by using regulation that was intended for a previous use case, for a previous technology, for a previous set of constraints uh, to deal with something that no longer is the case, right? So, you know, I think in many cases, uh, you know, we're seeing that that a lot of the thing, a lot of the regulation, for example, that was set up around the internet based on really telecommunication oligopolies in the 60s um, has broken down and has broken down because you have shifted from a world of, you know, uh, scarcity to a world of abundance. And these type of, uh, of regulations are, are not suitable for that. I think the same thing is likely to happen here. And I advise 
would really say advice is a strong word. I, I encourage regulators to pay attention to the fact that some of these technologies um, do require a fresh approach and, and they're moving quickly. Uh, the second one is what I'll call the, the law of unintended consequences. Um, one thing that I of, I've also seen happen often is that it's very easy to see, um, or it's much easier to see what can go wrong than what can go right. And it's also very easy to see um, what are the things that exist today that might cease to exist as a result of a new technology. It's much harder to see or to anticipate what are the things that don't exist today that might exist in the future. And oftentimes I think regulators tend to understandably focus on the former at the expense of the latter because the latter, you know, is in the future, you don't know what it might be. But I do think what that leads to is, I think some of the best regulations are, are, are cautious and are gradual and kind of, you know, titrate and advance as more information becomes available. Um, just like it's happened multiple times in the past and it's happening now, a lot of people look at AI and one of the sources of concern is that it's gonna replace humans, right? And, and as I mentioned before, I, I don't subscribe to that. I basically think that AI is far from having the skills, certainly of a, of a thoughtful experience underwriter, but I think that's true in a number of other professions as well, where you know the, the claim that AI is going to get rid of them is not there. But I think what people also fail to, to, to understand is there are a number of other jobs that are gonna be created as a result of the AI. And, and if you were to say, Take as an example, go back 20 years and you say, well, the internet is coming. Um, we think that actually, you know, we're talking about financial services. That's, that's a good example, right? You know, ATMs, you know, mm -hmm. well, we, we think that, that the teller machines are going to, uh, to get rid of cashiers. So, so let's ban them right? <laughs> because, because that's kind of what we should do. Um, what people don't realize is cashiers still exist. They just do different things. But then you also have now built tremendous infrastructure around electronic payments and such that allows folks like what we're doing right now, right? You know, we basically, we can talk to Zoom and pay this and, you know, order online instantaneously. And there are people whose careers are purely predicated on setting up an online store and selling a product, which would have been impossible if you had shut down that infrastructure 20 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. I, I feel that, the best regulators understand that and craft a path to make sure that the excesses of these technologies are managed and that the stakeholders that matter uh, are represented. Uh, but they understand that blunt instruments tend to have um, unintended consequences that could be problematic and could be damaging. Um, so so I, I really, as an observer, um, that's my piece of feedback, right? The people in insurance regulation, in financial services regulation, in AI regulation are very well-intentioned, very intelligent people. Uh, but in a fast-moving space like the one where we live now, uh, doing things gradually tends to be a, a, a sound approach, in my opinion. It's um, quite reflective of a conversation I had about um, the venture community, actually. Um, uh, I'm trying to, I was, I was trying to scrape my brain and go, where did I have this conversation? I think I was talking to someone who'd been for a raising round or, or yeah, successfully. So they weren't, they weren't bitter. They weren't embittered about it. It was just, you were saying, and, and they sat both sides of the fence. They'd actually been an entrepreneur, 
sold up, been a VC, then we're launching something. And they were saying their sort of criticism of, of certain venture businesses were that they were looking essentially, they were sort of quite reactive to what came in and, and weren't really staring enough down to what was possible and then looking for businesses that fulfill that. And, 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 and it's similar to regulation. Yeah, anything that's forward thinking is, is easy to kind of look at how technology is changing as we see it today, because that's still new and that's still kind of essentially a future, but it isn't the future, it's now. So we've got to kind of look at going to where does this, where does this, where does this go in the future? And then from the regulatory standpoint, what's so challenging, as you rightly said, is that they've got to go, what are the unintended consequences, good or bad? Um, and what does that mean? Because I don't envy them in this environment, but uh, we of, we often talk about regulation on this podcast and essentially we kick it around the room and say they don't move fast enough. But then, you know, we're we're acknowledging that most of the insurance community probably isn't moving quote unquote fast enough. So, um, and I think that's probably what I wanted to make as my last question, Paul, because I think you're the perfect person to sort of talk to about this. It's just like, so insurance companies are, insurance companies are risk carriers and, and they're not necessarily tech pioneers. So how do you see that they can set themselves up for success in this kind of AI age? Yeah, it's it's a great question, right? Uh, you know, I think um, and people tend to forget the fact that you know the insurance companies have probably been for centuries, I would say, at the forefront of using data, right? You know, back before uh, anyone was using calculators, the folks that were probably writing down numbers and knowing how many chips sank in the Atlantic were the folks at Lloyd's in London when they were trying to you know transfer risk from transatlantic. You know, voyages, right? So, so there's a little bit of that DNA of being thoughtful about data and its impact. But you're right that as as the centuries have passed and as the decades have passed, uh, the set of skills that are needed to be a successful insurance company, which are many and are complex in you know underwriting, distribution, claims, actuarial reserve, and regulation, are different than the set of skills that it takes to be a successful technology company. Right. And, you know, the profile, you, you're, you're in the talent business, the profile of people uh, who, who excel at the core insurance functions is different than the profile of people who excel at uh, technology functions. And obviously many of, you know, the large carriers and emerging MGAs uh, do have strong technologists. But that is not the core capability. And I think it's just difficult to do both. I mean, it's difficult to be a great insurance company and be a great technology company. Uh, and there are many examples of that, right? You know, a couple of years ago, AIG wrote down Blackboard for 250 million after, you know, a lot of investment, a lot of well-intentioned, a lot of smart people there. W why is that? Is that because everyone there had no idea what they're doing? No, it's just difficult, right? When you think through, uh, it, it's hard enough to succeed in one of air, one of these areas uh, alone, much harder to do it in two. So my my, my take here, and that's the reason you know, we we operate the way we do, is specialization does make a difference. And and by being company like Calepa, which is doing thinking day in day out, three hundred and sixty five days a year, um, about how we can use technology to make underwriting better, we are able to do things differently than what we would be able to do if we were, you know part of a carrier and trying to do that uh, with, you know, the many um, advantages, but many constraints that they have as well, right? So, so 
I mean, my take is somewhat self-serving, but I but I mean it and I believe it, which is the fact that uh, there's a benefit for carriers to partner with specialists and companies that have a deep expertise, that have the bench of talent, that have the ability to deliver a solution that is, you know, learning, improving, that takes advantage of, you know, a wise scope view of the marketplace versus kind of building on their own. That doesn't mean that's going to be the case for everybody, every single carrier, every single program administrator, but by and large, um, trying to be successful as an insurance company and as a technology company simultaneously is, is a high bar. And it's a bar that very few companies meet, and not just in insurance. It is true in other financial services. It is true in other um, industries. I mean, you see, you know, if you take something like retail, right? You know, Walmart is the exception, not the rule, in being able to have built a strong e-commerce business that is comparable to Amazon's. Um, the same cannot be said about the other, I don't know, 500 retailers that you know couldn't. And and there's nothing wrong with what they were doing. It's just what it takes to build a tremendous retail brand and what it takes to know merchandising. And that is different than what it takes to build you know, secure payments and what it takes to build uh, logistics infrastructure and what it takes to build, uh, you know, a, a strong user interface, right? So it, it is something that I oftentimes discuss with our clients and certainly with our prospects. Clients were considering bringing Kalepa to empower their underwriters. And oftentimes that comes from a perspective of we have tried before and are now happy with the results. Can you help us now? Uh, so I think a lot of people sort of like learn from bad experiences. Uh, but yeah, I mean, in general, it's just tough to do both. And I think the folks that understand what they're good at, and we clearly understand what we're good at and what we're not good at, um, basically tend to succeed more and more frequently, much more frequently. I think it, I completely agree. And I, I think, you know, you reach out a perfect example. I was thinking of retail as you were speaking. I was going, most businesses today, you wouldn't even bother building a site. You go, right, I'll just use Shopify. Even if you're a huge, like, you know, and you use Stripe for payments. And, you know, there, there, there's so many things that you go, that's all these people do. They're, they're great at it. Why don't we stick to brand? And, you know, when you're a risk carrier, um, but I th I'm important that you made that point as well about kind of, you know, we talk about insurance as this kind of risk averse industry, but it, it, it's a risk embracing industry. So the idea that they shouldn't be at the forefront of change is wrong. But I do think I do think that hiring and going back to our conversation about hiring is where that battle is won. And now, again, obviously, I'm kind of from my perspective, that's that's obviously the thing that's key to my heart. But I just see there's a slight evolution needed in some of those leaderships because one embracing buy versus build. And secondly, just embracing that kind of willingness to imbue that culture of change, adoption of technology as we go through. Um, those are the people that we see are going to win. And we're already seeing that now. So it's a super interesting time. And you guys are absolutely at the forefront of it. Um, we're definitely going to put those articles up as well, because I, I really enjoyed reading them. And I, I recommend that anyone does because, Appreciate you know, we've, we've touched it on it, Paul, but you really broke down. And, and it, was, it was great for me to read about what's hype and what isn't. So thank you so much, Paul, for being a guest on the podcast. I really enjoyed this. Um, yeah. And I hope we get to catch up soon. Well, Alex, I appreciate you taking the time. Great chatting with you. And, uh, you know, hope you have a great rest of your afternoon and evening. <laughs>